podcast with your host, Jake Weaver, engineered by Cedric Swan. Hey, everybody, we are back with another episode of Midnight on Earth. I'm your host, Jake Weaver, and we're here to bring you more knowledge, more light, and more love. I'm very honored to have an incredible guest on our show today. All our guests are incredible. I say that every time, but this one is incredibly special. <laughs> His name is Jonathan Robinson. And what a career he has. It's, it's stellar. And you read his books and it's mind-blowing. And we're going to talk to him in just a second. But first, I need you to do something for me. Go to bluecobracbd.com. That's bluecobracbd.com. And there you will find the highest quality CBD oil ever created on earth. This oil is unlike anything you will find on the market, period, in relation to CBD products. And the reason that is, is because the extraction method used to extract the CBD from the hemp is a proprietary method called the HIT extraction method. It was developed by a man that I know very well. His name's Howard Hitt, also known as Big H. And he developed something so magical and so special in the ocean of CBD products that are out there with some of the chemically extracted CBD products that use chemicals, solvents, and gases. This is the only product that is like this. There's nothing else. This is the top tier of all CBD products. I'm not joking. This is not an exaggeration Howard uses no chemicals, no solvents, no gases in the extraction process, his hit extraction method. It is 100% natural. It's 100% organic. The hemp used is 100% organic, Oregon-grown hemp. He has the King Cobra, which is the maximum strength, Little King Cobra, which is regular strength. And for animals, which is actually a huge hit right now, is Wild Thing. And you give that to your pets. It's CBD for pets. And we do have a discount code that gets you free shipping in the continental 48 United States, which is M-I-D-C-B-D. That's M-I-D-C-B-D. And that gets you free shipping, like I said, on any order in the continental 48 United States. It can be shipped internationally and to other places, but check your country's laws before talking to Howard about this. And he's available, totally available at his website, which is again, bluecobracbd.com. Everyone go there, use the code, get a bottle, report to me as many have bluecobracbd.com and lastly one more thing follow me on instagram at midnight underscore on underscore earth that's the address you can follow us there spotify apple podcasts google podcasts wherever you go to get your podcasts click that button that connects us so when people like jonathan robinson come on you know about it instantly Instantly, you get it on your device, on whatever you're using. 
And most importantly, of course, please tell a friend, tell someone that you know that loves these type of podcasts that would be interested in these topics. This is how we get it out there. These guests, they generously give us this information in their time. We have to get it out there more for them. So do that for me. Tell a friend, bring them here, midnightonearth.com. Okay. Social media shout out out of the way. And let's read Jonathan Robinson's bio. Jonathan Robinson is a psychotherapist, best-selling author of 14 books, and a professional speaker from Northern California. He has reached over 200 million people around the world with his practical methods, and his work has been translated into 47 languages. His work has appeared in Newsweek, USA Today, the Los Angeles Times, as well as dozens of other publications. In addition, Mr. Robinson has made numerous appearances on Oprah, CNN, as well as other national TV talk shows. Jonathan is also the co-host of the popular podcast Awareness Explorers. He has spent more than 40 years studying the most practical and powerful methods for personal and professional development. Mr. Robinson's first book, The Experience of God, included interviews with such notable people as the late Mother Teresa, the Dalai Lama, Deepak Chopra, and Dr. Wayne Dyer. Jonathan's second book, the Little Book of Big Questions became a New York Times bestseller, as did his book, Communication Miracles for Couples. Mr. Robinson's other books include Instant Insight, Real Wealth, Shortcuts to Bliss, Shortcuts to Success, Life's Big Questions, and Find Happiness Now. And he has others as well. We'll talk about that at the end. Jonathan speaks regularly to Fortune 500 companies such as Google, Microsoft, Dell, Bank of America, Coca-Cola, and FedEx Kinkos. In his public talks and workshops, Jonathan is known for providing his audiences with powerful and immediately useful information and a fun and entertaining manner. And he's here with us on Midnight on Earth. I can't believe it. Jonathan, thank you so much for being here. It's going to be a wild ride. <laughs> well, our frequencies matched. We're very similar people, as I read in your book. And uh, here we are together. So let's talk about your latest book. This is called The Enlightenment Project. And the subtitle is How I Went from Depressed to Blessed. And you can too. Isn't that an amazing thing? So tell me then. What is enlightenment to you? What does enlightenment mean? This is the enlightenment project. What is enlightenment? Well, that's a great question because you always have to define your term. You know, when people say God, some people think uh, a man in the sky and some people think of just a, an energetic love throughout the universe. So when it comes to enlightenment, people have all kinds of crazy ideas. Um, a simple definition of enlightenment is people who change their identity from uh, identifying with their ego personality to identifying with either their soul or pure awareness or pure love. And it's really a shift in identity, which 
you know, maybe people experience it for moments in their life when, you know, making love or in nature or on psychedelics, but some people permanently shift their identity and it's a whole, it's almost like being an alien being, you know, in this culture when you make that transition. Because we are so material focused and especially Western culture. But what I'm hearing you say is that the enlightenment process is shifting your center where you draw your you from, from yeah. not your ego, not your persona, but actually that, that consciousness, that divine spark that's within you. And fully enlightened people don't feel like they have a you. They just feel like they have a presence that they just got here. Every moment's new. So they don't really think in terms of them having a past. Uh, and, you know, I've met a lot of enlightened people and there's a continuum from, you know, not knowing what the hell I'm talking about to people <laughs> who experience it all the time. But certainly uh, it involves a lot more peace, a lot more love, a lot more presence than our normal chattering uh, mind, which is what we're mostly caught up in nowadays. So you feel then that there are degrees of enlightenment, you could say, where some people are at that total state and some people are existing within different kind of parts of the bandwidth, you could say. Yeah, yeah, I certainly fall into that category. I'm, I'm not a fully enlightened being by any means, but um, I go in and out of what could be called uh, perceiving life without a sense of ego. And I think a lot of people have that for moments. Sure. But the ego serves a purpose. I mean, in this dimension, as we exist together as humans interacting with our environment, our ego serves a pretty functional purpose. It's a nice thing to have. And it makes a great servant and a terrible master. <laughs> well, as a person that has tried over 75 different spiritual methods and meditated over 15,000 hours, you said you're saying you're not enlightened yourself, though you have moments of that. You're still a human being. You're still here. Yeah. Yeah. For better and worse. Uh, you know, and it's, it's fun to have an ego as long as it's not controlling your whole life. But it's really nice to be able to step into uh, deeper feelings of peace, bliss, and love that feel beyond the ego. And, you know, I, I got into this because I was a very depressed teenager and I was suicidal. I figured, you know, I couldn't control my outer environment. So I said, what can I do to have a better life? And I got into hypnosis and meditation at the ripe old age of 12. And... I said, well, you know, there is peace inside. There is something there. So I got into drugs a little bit and they showed me what's possible with, you know, like psychedelics. But then I realized I wanted to get there, not just through drugs, but get there through meditation or be able to be there whenever I wanted. Because, you know, life is hard. Uh, the world's a difficult place. And it's nice to have another channel you can tune into where, there's always peace and there's always stillness and uh, the science of how to get there has gotten a lot better in the last decade. Yes, because you started with transcendental meditation as inspired by the Beatles. I remember yeah. reading in your book and that opened you up at a very early age, but it was also the psychedelics, like you said, that were a catalyst as well. Can you talk about that a little bit more? Yeah, you know, um, psychedelics are good for showing you what's possible. You know, we, we live in this uh, Western culture, what I call culture, in which we uh, are taught that, 
you know, the more stuff you get, the more money you have, the better life is. But, you know, if you're if you're over 30, you probably know that's not really that true anymore. So but psychedelics, LSD, MDMA, better known as ecstasy, showed me like, wow, there's a whole different world out there that I wasn't tuning into. It's kind of like, you know, if you've been listening to country music all your life and then you hear rock and roll, you go, what the hell was that? That's pretty good. You know, so <laughs> I, I really enjoyed the states of mind that psychedelics brought, but I didn't get too focused on them because I knew that, you know, anytime you go up like that, you're going to go down as well. Right. And you, in your book, you actually dedicated a whole chapter to kind of discussing psychedelics in the realm of enlightenment and development. And you talked about some of the substances, but I did notice that in your DMT description, you only talked about five MAO DMT, but not NNDMT, which is a completely different experience. Have you since tried NNDMT? I haven't. And um, it's one of the only drugs I'd like to try that I haven't gotten access to. Uh, so it's on my list. But 5-MeO-DMT, I was actually instrumental in getting it out to a large audience about 20 years ago. 20 years ago, I bought like, you know, uh, a half a pound of 5-MeO-DMT from China. And, you know, that's like, you know, 50,000 doses. Yes, I just of course. gave it to everybody I knew and said, <laughs> you got to play this. You know, I, I especially enjoyed giving it to my agnostic and atheist friends because generally they became a believer that there is a higher intelligence somewhere. And that was kind of fun. But, you know, these drugs are powerful and anything that's powerful, you got to be careful with. Uh, they, they give you a four vision. And once you have that four vision, hopefully it inspires you to do something. You know, not just be inspired, but inspired to meditate or get a good book or find a group that can help you to get there without the drug. Yeah, essentially further your personal development, right? So you get that glimpse of the greater dimensions, the higher dimensions, God, you get, you get that experience. You have the authentic God experience because it really does shut off your monkey mind and get you to that place, albeit very briefly. But then you're supposed to do something with that. I know very many people that just kind of keep going back there and, you know, they just like right. hanging out there, but they're not really doing much after that. Yeah, and you know, part of the reason why people don't necessarily do much after that is that finding the right group or the right method, uh, they don't know how to do that. So in, in the book, uh, The Enlightenment Project, I tried to put together the 20 best spiritual methods on the planet. And, you know, it's interesting that like 15 of those methods are hardly known by anybody because they've been invented in the last three years. You know, just like our iPhone gets better every year, uh, the methods for finding inner peace or awakening are really getting exponentially better every year. It used to be that I could give people a glimpse of the enlightened state in an hour. Now I can generally do it in four minutes or less. Wow. And so what has been more refined in your opinion? Uh, well, one thing that's been refined is we have the internet, so we can put out a technique and 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 100,000 people can say, oh, my God, my head exploded when I did that technique, you know, and and a lot of the techniques that people know, say, like yoga or or Vipassana meditation, um, they've been around for 3000 years. Well, nobody has a computer from even 20 years ago. Why are we using methods from 3000 years ago? 
you know, the world's changed a lot and uh, the methods that really work for people now have to be like turbocharged. So most of the methods I present in the book take under three minutes to do. And I'll guide people on a couple of the methods during our talk today. Um, in fact, I have on my uh, website, uh, theenlightenmentproject.net, uh, a audio of the five best methods to awaken people in under three minutes. And it's all free. You know, it's a free ebook, free audio. So I, I'm trying to get these methods out there because I think the planet's in trouble. I think most people are having a pretty hard time. And if we can get a lot of really good ways to tap into peace quickly, that I think that could really help a lot of people. I believe you're accurate in that statement because the planet is in a rocky state of development right now in trouble. It's probably subjective, but at the very end of the day, it's we're at a place where we need to make a major shift. I mean, nobody can deny that. I've had several guests on my podcast talk about how we're moving into this new earth, but in order to adapt to this new earth, we all have to raise our frequency. And I think that the work that you're doing by activating people's awareness is helping them raise their frequency to kind of adapt to this, this new world that we're moving into. It seems like everything's perfect. You brought up Neem Karoli and your book, and that's something that he would tell Ramdas a lot. It's like, everything's perfect. Everything. But what about this? What about this? Everything's perfect because it's all moving in this divine function that's kind of beyond our understanding. So with that in mind, we know that even though things seem tumultuous right now, we are moving towards this perfect, beautiful place. And yes, the awareness is helping us adapt to that. What are your thoughts? Well, I agree. The awareness helps us a lot. An analogy I use is that there's like two channels. There's channel two, which is the world of duality and the and the the crap show of you know everything going on in the world. You know, uh, depression is up six hundred percent from forty years ago. You know, so uh, the suicide rate in America has never been higher. You know, you could go on and on. Global warming, whatever. Uh, so that's that's channel two. But on channel one, uh, where we're all one, uh, there's a a love or a peace inside of ourselves. Uh, there's there's the enlightenment. Everything's perfect there. Things are really sweet there. So it's nice to have two channels. You know, I like channel two. You know, <laughs> I have a relationship, and I you know, and things come and go, and win and loss, and and you know, uh, all the stuff of normal life. And then sometimes I go, oh God, that's that's good meditate and enter into a state of, of oneness with everything. And that's really sweet. So uh, when people don't have access to channel one or inner peace, then it can get pretty dicey. You see, you know, all the stuff going on in the world now, when people are stressed out, uh, the world does not go higher. Uh, the world goes into a tailspin. And, and I think we really need to get more people tapping into inner peace and enlightenment for the world to really work well. Yes, because the work is in channel two, right? This is where the work needs to be done. We get that channel one information like you talk about in your book, which is so amazing. 
but at the end of the day, we got to bring that channel one information into channel two to make this place heaven on earth. If we really want to live in the world that we want, where we're united and we're all together and everybody has what they need and it doesn't matter where you're born on earth, you're going to have the best possible experience. If we want that, and I think every spiritual person does, then we have to do the work. We have to do the work here, as you say, in channel two. Yeah. You know, I asked um, now a hundred spiritual leaders uh, ranging from, you know, the Dalai Lama and Deepak Chopra to Mother Teresa and Ramdas, etc. I used to ask them all, what's the purpose of human life? What are we here to do? And eventually I stopped asking because everyone gave the exact same answer. You know, you can't get a hundred people to agree that the sky's blue nowadays, but you can get a hundred, <laughs> you can get a hundred people to agree that what we're here to do. And that's amazing to me. It didn't matter if they were Christian or Jew or Muslim or whatever. So um, if people buy the book, I'll let them know what the purpose of human life is. No, I'm kidding. You. <laughs> yeah, I love your I'll, humor. I'll <laughs> Ready? It's not a shocker. They said that the purpose of human life is to do two things. Find the peace and love within yourself. And from your abundance of peace and love, go and help other people. So when Ram Dass asks, uh, as the reference you made earlier, his guru, Neem Karoli Baba, you know, Neem Karoli Baba said everything's perfect. And Ramdas was complaining, what about the starving kids here and the this and that? And Neem Karoli Baba would say, everything's perfect. And finally, Ramdas tapped into the peace of Channel One and, and felt the perfection of the universe. And then Neem Karoli Baba said, why are you sitting on your butt? Go and feed people, go and help people. <laughs> Service. This is what we talk about constantly on our podcast. Service. When you get to a certain plateau of development spiritually, you can only come to the same conclusion. Like you're saying, service. A hundred of the greatest spiritual people that you interacted with, these huge names, they're saying the same thing. Service. Because when you're at that level, you understand that there's work to be done here. We're not there yet. We'll get yeah. there. The first service is to find that peace and love within yourself yes. because if you're anxious, you're not probably going to be that helpful to anybody. So I think that we have to um, make a commitment to what can help me at this point, get in touch with more peace and love in my life. And that's why putting out the best methods has kind of been my mission. Yeah. And I think you're doing a great job and, and your development, like you talked about these different people from different religions, having the same conclusion. You did that. You're, uh, you were born Jewish, but you became Christian at a certain point, Harry Krishna for a few months, a Buddhist monk. You went into all these places to live as that, to gather the authentic information. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. Um, well, I think everybody has a piece of the puzzle, uh, so I'm always looking for what peace does somebody have or what peace some religion has, because if you gather enough pieces, maybe you'll find peace. <laughs> so, you know, I, I was a Buddhist monk for a while. I was a Hare Krishna for a month I was, or a couple of weeks. I was a, uh, I had a spiritual teacher for 26 years and um, he would give me tasks. And he noticed that because I was Jewish, I was kind of anti-Christian. I didn't like, uh, uh, some of the hypocrisy I saw in Christians. So he told me to become a Christian for a year. And that really tuned me into 
that there's value there. You know, people who can tap into Holy Spirit energy, that's a great thing to be able to do. And I'm, I'm very practically minded. I think there's one method that works the best, the one that works for you. Yes, exactly. So, so your mission, should you decide to accept it, is to find the method that taps you into peace, love, and joy the quickest and easiest. But most people are only exposed to one, two, three ideas. And, you know, I'm, I'm familiar with 300 methods. So the chances that your one, two, or three methods that you've been exposed to is the one that's going to work for you. Well, probably not. So think of the, the book, The Enlightenment Project, as um, the greatest hits of spiritual methods and ideas. <laughs> well, it, it's really an enlightenment handbook, I noticed, because it really touches on a lot of what you went through in your enlightenment process, which then could you know, reflect on other people's uh, perceptions and their experience. And it's also kind of the psychology of spirituality. There's so much going on in this book. I was really impressed. Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm kind of lazy, so I wanted, uh, <laughs> I want one book that would cover everything. You know, it's a 250-page book, but I want, like, the greatest information since I've had the, the, the uh, good luck or the persistence to interview all the greatest spiritual leaders of our time, I figured, you know, rather than have people spend 50 years doing that themselves, let me put it all in one book, and hopefully they can get the benefit of that. I think besides the methods in there, what can really help people are some of the stories and lessons I learned because um, some of the stories are really fun and have had a lot of impact on me and other people because people don't always do the methods, but they always remember the stories. That's true. <laughs> so, you know, uh, like for example, um, one story that, that I found interesting was that, when I initially interviewed a lot of spiritual leaders, I'd ask them, what idea or method do you find to be the most effective? Because these are people who might have millions of devotees. They, they get to a lot of feedback. You know, this works, this doesn't. So a lot of teachers mention the importance of gratitude. And uh, that upped my sense of the importance of gratitude for spiritual development. Well, I had a friend who went to India and when he came back, he was like totally lit up. And I said, what, what's gone on, Fred? He said, well, my guru gave me this magical mantra for feeling overwhelming gratitude in daily life. I go, really? Well, tell me the mantra. And he says, no, you have to get it directly from the guru. Well, I always like the best method. So I decide I would travel all the way to India to, uh, to get this mantra. Have you been to India, Jake? No, I have not yet. Yeah, well, it's it's um, it's a hard place to get to. It's eighteen thousand miles away from where I live, and <laughs> oh, then when awesome. you get there, you know, you, I had to take a rickshaw for four hours in one hundred and ten degree heat. Uh, it was tough. I finally get to the ashram, and I wait for three hours. I'm jet lagged, worn out. I finally talk to this guru in a white flowing robe, and in an Indian accent, he says. Ah, yes, my, my mantra is the most powerful mantra on earth. I'm so excited to get this phrase. And he says, whenever possible, repeat these words. The mantra I give you are the words, thank you. 
Well, I look at him, I'm thinking he's joking with me, but he's not smiling. I, I finally say, that's it? I traveled 18,000 miles to get thank you? That's it? And he goes, no, 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 no. That's it is the mantra you have been using. That makes you feel like you never have enough. My mantra is thank you, not that's it. That's <laughs> it. You know what? So I look at him, I'm totally pissed off. And I say, well, thanks for nothing. And he says, thanks for nothing is not the mantra. You must say it from your heart many times a day. So when you eat good food, say thank you. And when you see your child or a sunset or a pet, say thank you from your heart. And soon you will feel gratitude. Well, I'm still pissed off and disappointed, but I traveled all that way. So I figured I'd try what he said. So I again to a taxi. It's 110 degrees in India, but the taxi is air conditioning. And I say a very heartfelt thank you. You know, like I found the one taxi in India that has <laughs> air conditioning that works. And then I get to my hotel room. There's a bottle of clean water. I'm dying of thirst. Thank you for the water. I open up my laptop and I think, thank you for this laptop. You know, this amazing machine. I get to write all my books on it and talk to people. I, I Skype my wife. This was years ago. I Skype my wife and uh, she shows up. I'm thinking, thank you for my wife. I'm talking to someone on the other side of the planet for free instantaneously. I mean, a hundred years ago, somebody would have thought that that was a miracle of God. Yeah. And, and it's free. And all these senses of like how much we're given hits me and tears start coming down my eyes. And my wife says, wow, that must have been some mantra he gave you. <laughs> I said, you have no idea. You know? <laughs> well, it's interesting. You mentioned that the stories like that stick because I was thinking of that very story this morning after I read it in your book and that one really sticks with you because of that power of gratitude. But can you get to a point where you're in a constant state of thank you, where the moments are flowing by the actions and you're just always there? Like you've conditioned yourself to kind of change your frequency, I guess, at that point and be in that constant th state of thank you. Is that possible? Well, I know, I've interviewed people who are in that constant state. And uh, so it is possible. Um, but, you know, most of us, we have to do a, some amazing things have to happen for us to feel deep gratitude. And rather than depend on winning the lottery or whatever it is, or a new relationship, you can do it with little moments. I mean, your listeners now are listening to a guy who spent 45 friggin' years traveling to 50 countries to get the best information and put it all in one book for $15. Yes, I mean, thank you for that. <laughs> yeah, you know, and they're getting this information for free. I mean, if you're not tapping into how much you're given and you're using the mantra, that's it all the time, you know, you won't tap into it, but even tapping in for a moment uh, and feeling deep gratitude in your heart feels really good. Does it feel better to live that way all the time? Yeah. And we're all working towards that. Yes, definitely. And you talk about having a gratitude journal and some of the techniques that you can use to kind of stay in that mindset, in that frequency. Yeah. Yeah. And eventually it does become kind of a frequency, you know, like tuning into a station on the radio. 
at first there's a lot of static and it falls off that station and then you kind of tune it back to that station. So for me nowadays, it's more of an energetic thing. And I talk about some energetic uh, things. I mean, think of it that even Holy Spirit is an energy or uh, you could say Buddha consciousness is an energy and you can learn to tap into these higher energies uh, within so that you're not so dependent on channel two, always going the way you want. <laughs> yes, exactly. Even though it's said that you are supposed to be as a spiritual person and a person that wants to manifest things grateful, but then in some cases dissatisfied because dissatisfaction is a creative state. It gets you mm -hmm. to manifest more. You're completely grateful for everything you have, but you want to serve more. You want to manifest more. So it's not necessarily that's it, but there is kind of that dissatisfaction, which then compels you to manifest. What are your thoughts about that? Well, analogy I use a lot is that you know, a plane has two wings. You know, it has a right wing and a left wing. If one of those wings, and you're just focused on manifesting all the time, and you're not focused on inner peace, well, you're likely to go around in circles and then crash after a while. You know, if one wing is so much bigger than the other, <laughs> whereas if you're just focused on peace and meditating and you don't care about the world uh, and you, you know, just meditate and live in a cave, once again, your, your plane is likely to crash after a while because it's, it, you don't have two strong wings. So I, I encourage balance. The Buddha said that, you know, you should do the middle way, find balance. But most people gravitate towards either being in the world too much or being in, in separating themselves from the world too much. And I think there's a sweet spot for us where we can manifest our peace and love and make the world a better place. Yes, I believe so as well. I mean, that is the purpose of leaders like yourself and people that have that awareness of their manifestation ability is to create that balance in order to do the work more. Um, one thing I do want to talk about in your book is Dr. Jeffrey Martin's work. Um, in your book, you talk about how Dr. Martin conducted 1200 interviews with enlightened spiritual people or people that have reached that state to kind of find a common ground or some sort of methodology or understanding. Uh, to me, it was very similar to Napoleon Hill's book, Think and Grow Rich, where he interviewed 500 of the successful people of his time to kind of create a science of success. And Dr. Martin had this really interesting method of doing things where he created these locations, these four locations of development, actually five, but these four locations of development. And you kind of adapted a little bit of that into your book. Can we discuss that a little bit? Sure. Yeah. He's a fascinating person, a, a friend. Now he wrote the forward to the book and um, he's a Harvard trained psychologist and he wanted to see what research was out there about enlightened people. And he found that there was basically none. So he spent 20 years <laughs> studying all the enlightened people he could find. And he found that enlightenment isn't really just one thing. It's, it's people of what he would call four or five different types of enlightenment which he, I describe in the book, how they're slightly different. Yes. And, and there's not one that's better than another. They all have a lot of peace in them. They all have a lot of joy in them. But with some of them, you're more able to function well in the world, and some you're more separate. 
So people in what he would call location four tend not to have close relationships because they don't have a sense of them of you. You know, they, there's no one there. So they, they don't uh, uh, have relationships the way maybe you and I have. Whereas people in location one, they kind of go in and out of feeling peace uh, and, and they're more functioning in the world. So he talks about all the different techniques that he learned from these people. And one thing he found that was interesting is that the method that got them to enlightenment was not known, that they had created it for themselves. So he took a lot of these methods and he teaches an online course where he teaches the methods that he found to be the most effective. Interesting. Well, one thing I want to talk about in relation to this is that fifth location. You talked about that in your book, and, it, and it's kind of describing a situation where you're kind of too ethereal to be in a material body. You're like unbalanced in a way, kind of more over there than here. And that's yeah. something I, I would say you wouldn't recommend. What do you think about that? Well, it depends on your lifestyle. If you're retired and you don't have anything to do, then yeah. You know, <laughs> Why not? Right. Just go in the other dimension and, you know, exist here as little yeah, as possible. There you can talk to angels and alien beings and have all kinds of psychic experiences happen. But um, people like that generally have a hard time holding down a job. Yes. I mean, it'd be like being on LSD all the time, you know, it might be fun, but uh, you don't want to be a truck driver. <laughs> exactly. And it's really just the daily interactions that, uh, that kind of are harder when you're on those psychedelics, you yeah. know, that, that could create that problem. It is kind of like that. You're right. So, you know, uh, there's actually a science of how to get into some of these higher locations and how if you end up in a too, a high, a too high a location, how to kind of come down from them so that you're more functioning. You know, one, one challenge I sometimes have if I meditate a lot is how to then get back into my body and, and do email. So essentially maintaining that awareness while you're doing your daily activities. Well, that's a, that's a, uh, leading, a growth edge for me, how to do both at the same time. And, um, that, that takes time and practice. I found after I've had psychedelic experiences in the past, it would always be the next day when I was kind of still half under the influence, when I'd be just doing my daily activities, going to the store, going to the bank, things like that. And then seeing them in a completely different light and still having that awareness, but then yeah. being in the, you know, ritual based world that we live in. Right. It's nice to be able to be what Dr. Martin calls fluid. You can go in and out of these states of consciousness very easily. And that's something I'm personally working on. Interesting. Um, two things in your book that I really want to talk about because they're kind of, I guess, in vogue in the spiritual metaphysical community right now. Uh, and that is spiritual bypassing and the power of fear and how fear holds us back. Let's talk about spiritual bypassing. Like, what does that mean to you? I've heard so many different definitions of this, but what does this mean to you? It means uh, using the terminology we talked about, maybe going into channel one to avoid the difficulty of channel two. But another way of putting it is when you... Um, are avoiding the messiness 
of human life and neurosis and and relationship and instead just kind of avoiding stuff your curriculum and just tapping into the peace which is a nice ability to have but to use such things as a method of avoidance is in my opinion not a good idea so that is spiritual bypassing to you're essentially bypassing whatever internal work you need to do by checking out and going into channel one into these astral dimensions and hanging out with god and be like i'm fine over here everything's perfect why do i have to worry about that yeah well i think the 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 name of the game is growth and the way you grow is by facing some challenges you know when you go to a gym you don't lift one pound you lift the the amount of weight that is a challenge to you and by doing that you grow muscles well the way you grow spiritual muscles is by you face the challenges of life and see if you can maintain some sense of peace despite the fact that your mate is upset at you or that your job is stressful or the stuff of life Yes, it is really interesting because then fear comes into play because you're afraid of what other people think about you or what it means to approach those situations that you're trying to bypass. You're you're afraid of it. And that's that crippling power of fear. Yeah. Think of fear as like uh, a prison and people with a lot of fear and who are not trying to face their fear uh, have a very small prison cell they live in. Well, when you face your fears, that prison cell grows bigger because you're now less afraid and enlightened people in a way have no fear whatsoever. So even if uh, I was talking to Byron Katie, a famous spiritual teacher, and she said, you know, somebody in one of her workshops uh, put a gun to her head and said, I'm about to kill you. And I said, what was that like? And she said, well, I felt great compassion for the person. I said, you really don't want to do that to yourself. It would really create difficulty for you. And that's how she felt about it. Not going to be difficult for me. I'm not afraid of dying, but you know, you're probably afraid of going to prison. Yeah. So it's not really a bad thing to return back to God. You would say. right, Right. So, you know, I was afraid of everything as a teenager. So I got to have a lot of practice uh facing fears and you know sometimes people ask me how i manage to talk to all these spiritual leaders and i say well if you're willing to face your fear especially a fear of rejection you can get over you know you can do a lot of things that normal people can do so my story was um at 18 i was a freshman at ucla And I had never asked a woman out on a date because I was afraid of rejection. So my roommate said, you know, this is, he said, you know, you're just moping around. What do you want? I said, well, I want to get laid, but I'm too (laughs) afraid to ask a woman out. So he said, okay, tell you what, if you get rejected by 10 women today, I'll treat you to a trip to Hawaii. Because his philosophy was that the way to face, to get out of a fear was to face it head on. And um, that made sense to me. And I wanted to go to Hawaii. So I said, (laughs) okay, you know, went down to the university bookstore and he's watching from afar because he wants to see if I can really do this. And I then realized why I had not done this before, because I was terrified and beads of sweat are dripping from my face. 
I'm shaking. I asked the first woman, you know, out. I, I say, hello. And my voice <laughs> And she turns around, she sees this guy shaking and sweating, and she says, are you all right? Do you need an ambulance? Because she thought I was having a seizure. <laughs> so the entire conversation was me convincing her not to call an ambulance. Uh, that the, I, Finally, I asked her out, and she said, no, thank you. I have a boyfriend. And, and are you sure you're all right? Yeah, okay. And so from there on, I, I found that with each woman I asked out, it got easier because I kind of knew what was happening. And I actually wanted to get rejection because I needed 10 rejections to go to Hawaii. Well, so this is going good. And, you know, when you face a fear, Jake, what happens is you immediately feel a sense of expansion. So by the fourth woman I'm asking now, I'm starting to feel high because, you know, I'm, I'm breaking through this lifelong fear. But the seventh woman ruined my momentum. Uh, I, I now had a script, so I went up to her and said, hey, I'm new here. I'm trying to meet people. You look like a really nice person. Would you like to go out sometime? And she looks at me and she says, yeah, sure. Well, it never occurred to me somebody might say yes. So I said, sure what? And she said, yeah, I'd like to go out with you. So I, she writes down her phone number. I'm feeling fantastic now. And, you know, when you feel really good, you're kind of magnetic to people. So the next woman I went to said yes, and the next, and the next, and the next. So I'm starting to get all these dates. And I realize I have a new problem. I have to get rejected by three more women or I can't go to Hawaii. <laughs> so, so I figure I'll start acting like a jerk. So I go up to a woman and I go, uh, hey, baby, uh, you look smoking hot. How about you come to my place Friday night? I'll show you a really good time. What do you say, sugar lips? And this woman's her, her jaw just opens. I can imagine her face right now. And then she looks at me and then she says, sure. <laughs> <laughs> she, she thought my act was hysterical. So she wanted to go out. But um, I managed to throw on some water, do the shaking routine, get three final rejections, go to Hawaii. But more important, I, I took my fear rejection from a level 10 of total terror to more like a level three of mild dislike. Yes, and, you conquered that. And it took 20 minutes. So, I mean, think of it that my entire life changed in 20 minutes. And I think people need to realize that we're, they're mostly run by fear. Fear of failure, fear of rejection, fear of embarrassment, fear of looking stupid, uh, fear of saying the wrong thing, whatever, all these fears. And that if you can face some of your fears, uh, it just gives you a lot more freedom and enlightenment is basically the experience of total freedom. Right. Because at the end of the day, fear is the absence of faith. So if you have absolute faith, there's no fear because when you reach those higher levels of understanding, when you're truly just awareness, you understand that it's you and God, and then it's really just God and God doesn't judge. And who cares what these people down here think? Of course, you don't want to offend them or hurt them or do anything unjust, but people's judgments and their perceptions of you are pretty much meaningless in the grand scheme of thing. And, and, and that's really where you conquer that fear. When you have that absolute faith, you had faith in yourself. And I remember that story from your book. It was so funny. And you had faith in yourself and you and you, like you said, within 20 minutes, you conquered that and that shifted your frequency permanently and made you a different person. And you probably had a really good time in Hawaii. 
Yes, I did. And I had a really good time meeting all these fascinating people. And, you know, just being yourself, you know, one of the regrets of people dying, the number one regret of people dying is that they weren't more fully themselves. You know, um, many years ago, I had a, uh, uh, I was in a van that crashed. Uh, I was a passenger and I ended up having a near death experience. Yes, I remember and that. I was on the Oprah show. It was with a bunch of people who had had a near-death experience, meaning we were officially pronounced dead for a period of time. For me, it was only two minutes. For one guy, it was 37 minutes. He was in a hospital and he was dead. And then he came back to life. Well, long story short, when you're dead, um, people have very similar experiences. They usually see uh, a light source and they feel lovingness from that light source and they move through a tunnel to that light source. And sometimes, um, and most of the time they feel like they get a life review. Well, during this life review, uh, when I was on the Oprah show, the eight of us being interviewed by Oprah about near death experiences mentioned that we were both, we were all asked the same questions during this life review. Well, I find it fascinating that, Atheists in Indonesia and Christians in Kansas are all being asked the same two questions. It doesn't matter what religion you are, what culture you are. It's always basically the same two questions that you get asked when you are dying or dead. And I think it's important for people to know what those two questions are. Yes, please tell us. Well, for 1495. No, I'm kidding. again. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully, hopefully your 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 um your audience is grateful that they're getting some good stuff from. Oh, from, we're uh, loving it! I'm loving it. This is incredibly generous of you. Well, you know, it's not generous. It's really we get experiences so we can help other people. And, exactly. Um, and the two questions that uh, I and other people have heard are uh, the first question. I think people are going to be disappointed by because it's there's it's so obvious. And the question was, what have you learned about love? And I don't think it's just a coincidence that pretty much every religion has love as its cornerstone. You know, somehow, although we've created a culture that isn't about love and, you know, has has turned love into a, a way of selling deodorant, um, <laughs> there's really... You know, something important about our mission in life is to learn about love and how to be more loving people or how to tap into love within ourselves or how to have better loving relationships. You know, love is is key. So I wasn't surprised by that. And as I'm reviewing my life, I got to see moments I had been loving and moments that I had not been loving. And that was very instructional for me. But the second question was more um I found it more interesting because I didn't expect it. And that was, uh, I translate it as, how well have you completed your mission? And of course, in that question is the assumption that we all have a mission. And the first mission that I got was that you're supposed to be you. You know, you're supposed to actually manifest who you are and say the things you're thinking and do the things you want to do. And a lot of people, they don't do that. They're, you know, spending five hours a day watching TV and then going to a job that they hate and then not saying how they feel or what they think. 
So it's really important, I think, for our, our spiritual uh, nourishment that we tap into being more fully ourselves and that we face some of the fears or obstacles that are in the way of doing that. So then what's mission two? If mission one is be you, what would be the other mission? Well, the other mission was learning about love. Learning about love. You, yeah, yeah. Okay. So that's really interesting. So you had the panoramic life review. We just recently had a guest on who had uh, three near-death experiences in her life. And, oh. you know, she had uh, incredible stories. So you had that traditional NDE. You had the panoramic life review. You saw it all and you actually have recollection of that and your conscious awareness. Yeah, that, that was good. And uh, of course, it was a traumatic experience. One person in the van uh, became quadriplegic. So oh my God. I don't want to fight of it, but um, it was a valuable experience. It helped solidify what I'm here to do. At the time I got the message, this was interesting. I got the message that I was supposed to write books. Well, I had never written a book. I never even thought of writing a book. And then I was told, no, you're supposed to write some books. And uh, okay, I guess that's what I'm supposed to do. And, um, you know, I think that there's forces that help that, meaning the first book I wrote, uh, I got on Oprah and she devoted an entire show to the book and it became a bestseller. So, you know, when we think that we're the doers, but there's a lot of forces out there that we barely know about, we barely have names for, and, and sometimes we tap into them. And then we get to see the world is a lot different than we thought it was. Yes. It's those uh, synchronistic moments, those miracles, like you talk about in your book. And that first book is the experience of God. Is that correct? No, actually the first book was life's big, a little book of big questions. Okay. Well, in that experience of God book though, you had synchronicities like calling uh, mother Teresa and having her pick up in 1992, having her pick up the phone. And not only that, she also, she also gave you the Dalai Lama's phone number, which yeah, that probably wild. wouldn't happen today. Like in 2022 and our age of the internet, uh, that probably wouldn't happen for an average person or really anybody anymore. <laughs> well, back in 19, it was 1993, I think, but, um, I was stunned, you know, I well, calling India in 1993 was like calling the International Space Station now, you know, somebody's not likely to pick up. But the fact that I got this number and she picked up was a miracle. And I think when you're doing work out of service, you you get more synchronous moments, you get more miracles. You know, I was one at one time we're going to write a story or a book just of all the miracles I experienced. And I decided not to, but you know, when I went over it in my head, there was a lot of miraculous things that happened. And I took those as a sign that I'm kind of on the right track. Right. Well, you know, those are the indicators. I mean, the, that is in a way the language of God, that's God telling you that you're doing things correctly in a way. Yeah, it's kind of like the the cosmic hot and cold game, you know, where <laughs> where God's saying, "Hey, you're you're red hot. Keep going in that way, baby." Or, you know, sometimes I've been in the opposite where, you know, everything I do isn't working uh, and everything feels boring, and that's the universe saying, "You're freezing, baby. Go in, go in another direction." Or like the time you burned your feet when you didn't listen to the intuition telling you not to walk across those goals. Yeah, you know, um <laughs> The story behind that is 
you know, I've done a bunch of fire walks where you walk barefoot or burning hot coals. I started to think, ah, eh, I don't even have to ask if it's safe because that was the instruction. Ask God if it's safe for you to walk over the coals. And, you know, I'd done it a bunch of times. I don't need to ask anymore. I can just do it. Well, because I didn't ask, uh, I, I then walked across the coals and my feet got burned. So I now learned that it's not me walking across coals keeping me safe. It's some other force, and it's important to uh, to ask for help. Yeah, always, always, in every moment. It's like, please yeah. help me and thank you at the same time, right? Thank you and help me. <laughs> I think are the two best prayers, and you can say them both in three seconds. Thank you and help me. <laughs> well, let's talk about what enlightenment does and what it doesn't do. Because one of the things it doesn't do is make bad habits disappear. I thought that was really interesting in your book. And you kind of outlined these different points about how enlightenment can shift a person and how it doesn't shift a person. Can, can you touch on those things a little bit? Yeah, you know, we have a lot of misconceptions about enlightenment. In fact, in the book, uh, The Enlightenment Project, I, I talk about the 25 most common misconceptions. And I think it's helpful because when you have an accurate view of enlightenment, it makes it easier to actually have more enlightened moments. If you have a totally inaccurate view of what enlightenment is or does, it makes it harder. So one of the uh, misconceptions people have about enlightenment is that enlightened people have no problems. Well, in a certain way, that's true. If you're fully enlightened, there's no you, so there's no problems. <laughs> but, you know, the, the body still has money issues. It still has relationship stuff it has to deal with. Um, but one of the things that really surprised me was that even pretty enlightened people still have conditioning from their past that affects them. Like, for example, uh, um, you know, Ramdas said that every neurosis he ever had was still with him. It's just his relationship with them changed, meaning that he instead of of uh, feeling a lot of fear, he would notice the fear and it would be there. It would sometimes influence him, but he was not a fearful person anymore or um, even. Uh, a very enlightened person like maybe Ajashanti, who I interviewed, would say that sometimes his body would experience anxiety. It wasn't like he was experiencing anxiety, but he would feel anxiety going through him or the fact that um, he still liked certain food more than other food. You know, <laughs> uh, he said he still likes to eat junk food. Or um, the guy who wrote I Am That, um, uh, forget his name, uh, he went by various names, but popular book, he still smoked cigarettes after he became enlightened. So it doesn't clear the slates completely. Um, and uh, that was helpful for me to know because I thought, well, I must not be enlightened because I still have some of these bad habits. Right? <laughs> and that's actually not the case because like you said, it did kind of affirm that for you that really enlightenment, we could just say it again. It's a frequency shift. You're raising your vibration though. Your body's consciousness may desire some of those things like sweets and cigarettes and, and other things. But at the end of the day, you've, switched yourself you've changed your frequency to something different than it was before that's the enlightenment getting closer to the light 
Yeah, yeah. And and uh, people also have different enlightenment experiences. Some people experience it as feeling loving all the time. And some people experience it more as being incredibly peaceful. And some people experience it as being very blissful. So there are different different frequencies within the larger band of uh, uh, enlightenment. Yeah, I think enlightenment for me, I don't consider myself a fully enlightened person like yourself, consider you know, like you consider yourself, but you just have these enlightenment moments. It's really just for me, it's seeing God in everything, including myself, the material mm-hmm. things, the immaterial things. I can see myself and other people. I, I mean, we're all one. So really, when we get to that point, like that, that is the enlightenment, seeing the light of everything. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you get better at tuning into that world, you know, and, and quicker of, of going back and forth. Uh, sometimes uh, somebody cuts you off on the freeway and you, <laughs> you, wanna, you know, cuss them out. And then uh, an enlightened person might then go back to being pure love in you know, five seconds later. Hey, how do you know? Are, are you in my car? Like, how did you know yeah, about I, that? <laughs> I got well, there's methods, though, that uh, have helped you in the past. The Sedona method and that uh, Lester Love method. Yeah. Well, let me talk about both of those methods. <clears throat> the Lester Love method, it's an interesting story. There was a guy in Lester Levinson who uh, back in 1954 was told after a severe heart attack that there was nothing that they could do, just go home and die and try not to do anything strenuous like tie your shoes because that will kill you. So he's thinking, okay, I got maybe a couple days to live. Uh, he's only 45 at the time. And he's, he decides to think about who in his, in his life has he loved. So he makes a list of all the people he's ever loved, and he just starts sending them love. Well, it ends up, this helps him to feel better. And soon he's filled with energy. And he's filled with so much energy that he stops sleeping. And after a week, he starts running. You know, he was told that you're going to die if you tie your shoes. And now he's running 10, 20 miles a day. Long story short, he becomes a fully awakened person within three months just by focusing on loving people all the time. And uh, and he creates something called the Sedona method to help people achieve the enlightenment he experienced. But the way he got there was by focusing on people that he loved and just meditating on that. And I've done this type of meditation. It's very powerful. I and mean, it's like bathing yourself in love. I just have a list of 50 people I've loved, you know, not long love, just, you know, like family or girlfriends or my wife or my dog or my cat or whatever. And I spend a minute each thinking about what I love about them, what I appreciate about them. And by the time you're done with an hour, you're like so in love that that vibration, that frequency is you. And when I've done this, my wife always says, you just did the Lester Love meditation, right? I can tell you got light <laughs> on you, you know. So, but the Sedona method is a method you can use in daily life, and uh, you know, I, I talk about a lot. I'll give the the thirty second technique of the Sedona method. Okay. Of course, there's a longer technique, but the the basic method is when you're upset, you ask yourself, "Could I let go of being upset now?" for like 20 seconds so I can just be here and feel the peace of this moment. 
And it's an interesting question because, you know, let's say you're upset about uh, what your partner said to you this morning. Could I let go of that upset just for 20 seconds so I could be here in this moment? Well, when you give your brain that choice, a lot of times it says, yeah, I don't need to hold on to that upset. I don't need to hold on to that worry. I don't need to hold on to that anger. And through a lot of practice, you can let go of a lot of your conditioning with methods like that. Interesting. And, you know, I thought it was interesting that you participated in that study where they hooked you up to an EKG machine and you used that Lester love method and the amount of gamma waves that were coming off of your brain was so substantial that it, it shocked the researcher. Yeah, well, she had um, used the, it was an EEG machine, a very expensive EEG, one. EEG, sorry about that. Um, she had used it on the Dalai Lama and a few other people. And they found that all the really awakened people had these same brainwave patterns, so what she called the enlightened brainwave pattern. Well, she had never seen that in an American, uh, but I figured I'm going to take out my secret stash of, of good method and, <laughs> and, and see what I can you know, show her. So I do the Lester Love meditation. I'm in a state of great love and bliss. And she says the machine must be broken because no American has had these brainwaves before. You know, this is the same brainwaves as the Dalai Lama. And I said, well, let's see. Let me try another meditation method. And all the other methods I used, she was very unimpressed. No, this shows that you're a neurotic mess. So, you know, uh, <laughs> so uh, she said, you know, just keep doing the Lester Love method and, and you're in good shape when you do that. Yeah, I thought that was just fascinating because it does lend itself to this concept that our brain activity, if we can get hold of that, can help manifest the world that we want. You know, if we can keep ourselves in that gamma wave state, then we're going to be existing in a different life. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, and they're now um, pretty good technology being developed to help train people's brain waves towards higher states of gamma EEG and higher states of love and peace. And I'm very um, excited about those. In fact, I wrote a book about uh, that called The Technology of Joy. And it goes into a lot of the methods out there technologically for helping people experience higher states of consciousness. Wow. And, and you just think about how we develop in the next 20 to 50 years. And that seems like a material indicator that we're moving towards this beautiful new earth. We've got the science behind us. We have the spirituality behind us. It seems inevitable. Yeah. Well, it's a race between whether we'll raise our consciousness or destroy ourselves first. And <laughs> hopefully technology will help. Well, everything's perfect, right? Neem Karoli. Come on. We can't argue with that guy. That's true. Channel, <laughs> channel two, though, could use a little bit fine-tuning, I think. And that is why we are here as teachers, as leaders, and then we awaken more people, and then they become teachers and leaders. Because one thing that I've learned is that you only have to be a couple degrees of knowledge above someone else to teach them. You don't have to be at the highest state of awareness and understanding. Just a little bit more knowledge makes you a teacher. Yeah. And, and when you pass on what you know, it kind of helps you get to the next level. You know, I was a spiritual teacher for a while. I'm not now um, other than, you know, obviously I have this podcast called Awareness Explorers where uh, we, we discuss methods and, 
and uh, have various teachers on. But uh, putting yourself even for a moment in the teaching position can help not only another human being, but it can help you get to a next level. You know, right now I teach meditation in prisons and, you know, people say, oh, you're so nice to do that. No, I'm not nice. I'm, I'm, I'm intelligently selfish because when you pass on <laughs> what you know to others, then you get to go to the next level. Well, they say that givers gain, right? So like when you're putting yeah. out, it's only natural law. I mean, it's universal law that says it's going to come back and, and make you more. And when you become more, everyone else becomes more because that's how interconnected we are. That's how quantumly entangled we are. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. I think I read somewhere that every human being on earth has at least a thousand atoms that when currently a thousand atoms in them that were in the body of Jesus Christ. Oh my God. That's how connected we are. Wow. Where, where, where did you hear that? This is a first for me. It's on the web and it can be proven scientifically just by how many atoms are on earth and how many atoms are in your body and that every person on earth would have like at least a thousand atoms or something uh, that, I mean, that's pretty interconnected. Yes. I mean, and that shows just like I said earlier, how we are all one. We're just this living light and all of it's connected. Even as we discover or truly interact with extraterrestrial races in the material sense, we'll find that we're all just one family. They're just neighbors. Like it's, it, there is no disconnection. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, luckily I've had some experiences where uh, with my old teacher, there were beings not that generally are not known that would go around him, that would uh, show up around him. Now he called them loblies. Um, but he said most people would call them either angels or poltergeists. And he said that uh, a lot of people confuse them with extraterrestrial beings, but they're actually from this planet and they're balls of light and they would surround him. And we would sometimes play music with them, which was a lot of fun. And this is your teacher, Justin Gold. I just want to clarify for listeners that you studied yeah. with for 26 years. He was like a guru type figure for you. Right. He was. And uh, I, I was happy that most of those years I got to actually live with him because, you know, generally awakened beings uh, are, you know, they might have 10,000 or a million devotees. And uh, I got to have a very close association with him. And we did a lot of service projects together. We traveled together. We lived together. And that was a great education. So you visibly saw these light beings, these balls of light when you were with him. And you said that they even interacted with the instruments like a flute in the room. Yeah. Yeah. So we had various wow. interactions with them. <laughs> I mean, it got to be like, oh yeah, the lobbies are here again. You know, what do you want to do with them? <laughs> that's, that's huge. I mean, that's really powerful to have that as a human in your experience repertoire of, of being not only in the presence of this guru, Justin Gold, but then interacting with these beings that he's interacting with. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. It made me realize that, you know, there's a lot more out there than than we've been led to believe. I mean, even just in the last six months, we're being told that there's spaceships that are doing stuff around the earth that yes. nobody really knows what's going on or, you know. Uh, so, 
you know, we have this material world life where we're focused on problems and plans and relationships. But outside of that narrow band radio spectrum, there is a lot of interesting stuff going on and a lot of stuff into. And as we develop as humans, we're going to get access to that when we raise our awareness and we can process more information just collectively. And that's when we can experience all of those things that are out there waiting for us. Yeah. Yeah. You know, one of the questions I like to ask people is what's the most miraculous thing you've ever experienced that you really had no explanation for if you've ever had something like that. And I've asked this question to like a thousand people and about 80% of people have something that's happened in their life that they just couldn't explain a psychic phenomena, interaction with an angel, extraterrestrial, all kinds of stuff. So I think when we share these stories or when we read about them, it opens up our mind as to what's possible. And, you know, in the Enlightenment Project, I share a bunch of those stories because I want people to realize that we're really close to, to other dimensions. We're really close to other experiences. And if you're open-minded and you have some ways to quiet your mind, those experiences start happening. Yes, yeah, so you, you find in the psychedelic experience, especially with DMT, that those higher dimensions are literally just like 0. 0.0001 away. It's just like literally right there. Exactly. And, and that's fun. And, and, uh, and they can be useful. You know, a lot of people ask me how I write my books. And I say, well, I, I basically meditate and ask for guidance. And then stuff comes through me. Some of my books uh, my first book, The Little Book of Big Questions, was written in two hours. <laughs> you know, so. Is that the book where you were stranded in a town for a week? No, that book also was guided called Communication Miracles for Couples. That's right. That's that, right. That book sold a million copies. So, you know, <sighs> if I hadn't been stranded in a town for a week with nothing to do, that book probably never would have been written. Well, I would say that's a miracle. And you talk about miracles in the Enlightenment Project. And I want to ask you about this. What is a miracle? Uh, we know the, the Webster definition, but what is it to you? Like, what, what is a miracle? Well, for me, I'd say a miracle is something that I don't have any good explanation for. So, you know, when uh, one of the stories I think in the book is when my iPhone transported in across my room into a locked cabinet. Yeah. I have no explanation, no frigging clue how that happened other than something known as PFM, um, right. which is my only explanation for that. And PFM is how a lot of things work. Uh, and it stands for pure frigging magic. That's okay. You can say it on this podcast. It just okay. let it... Pure fucking magic. Pure fucking magic. Let's just say <laughs> I thought that was awesome in your book. When I read that, I was like, yes, I know exactly what that means. You know, it's these miracles. It, it seems like an interface point where divine energies, these beings, the lovelies are angels. They're interfacing with us and, and it can't be explained by the rational mind. So it gets classified right. as miracles, but really it's just these interface points. Yeah. And they can't be explained by our known laws of physics. But, you know, if you listen to a lot of the physicists nowadays, the cutting edge physicists, you know, they say stuff which which blows the mind. Like, you know, we're ninety nine point nine 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 percent empty space. You know, if you could condense human matter into there is no empty space, we 
materially are the size of a dust particle. Yes, <laughs> I have heard that. You know, so everything's PFM. And, you know, the entire <laughs> the entire cosmos, everything we do, really, if you get down to it, is PFM. And and um, we get a, a brain where we think we explain stuff, but if you're in the right state of consciousness, you realize how how am I moving my hand? I have no idea. Nobody actually knows how people have thoughts and then move their hand. That's a miracle. But, you know, generally we're pretty numb. So we have to have, you know, our, our iPhone transported across the room or we have to see angels appearing before we go. Oh, OK. Yeah, it's a miracle. But do you think that the. I guess the the bulk of humanity, most of us of the billions of people on this planet are kind of trapped in this lower frequency experience where we don't experience PFM or we're just not tuned into it. Do you think that that's by design? Is there some force or something kind of feeding on humanity or is it just fear, just the, the collective fear that's, that's keeping us in kind of this very lower brain function kind of ritualistic movement? Yeah, it's an interesting question. I mean, you could say that you could give a negative connotation to that, to a downward force and call it, you know, Satan or the devil or something like that. Or you could just say there's a, a force like I call it spiritual gravity. You know, gravity makes it so everything wants to find its lowest place. And I think there's a spiritual gravity. It's easier to watch uh, TV shows than to meditate. And and so we have to work against what I could call spiritual gravity to get to higher states. And that's part of our job. Interesting. So really, it's just a part of the human story, that spiritual gravity. We have to break through that. We have to change our behaviors, our lifestyle when we get exposed to new information in order to bypass that. Yeah. And there's resistance to raising your vibration. There's resistance to exercise. Um, luckily, <laughs> luckily the, the, it used to be that you had to like meditate for hours uh, before you could experience something really higher, but then drugs came in and now, Oh, I can experience something higher with, you know, without resistance. And I think the methods for experiencing enlightenment or higher states of consciousness keep getting better so that lazy folks like me can experience them <laughs> more regularly because, you know, if it takes more than three minutes, you know, forget it. And, uh, and, and so that's why, you know, I put out some of these simple methods in the book, because I think if you make it, if you make higher states of consciousness, it's easy as turning a channel on your TV. That's when the world will be transformed. Yes, because it's palpable to everyone wherever they're at. And yeah. if they feel like it's too hard, most people won't do it. Let's just be honest. A lot of people kind of eschew the hard work. And if it's so, if it seems like it's something that can happen very easily, or at least with minimal effort, they're more likely to do it. Absolutely. So yeah. I want to get your thoughts on this. When the Dalai Lama you know, you talked to him directly, but when the Dalai Lama came to where I live, I live in Portland, Oregon, 
He came here in about 2012, I believe was the year. He talked a lot about extraterrestrials and how they're very real and how they're out there watching us, waiting for us to develop. I thought that was really shocking. It didn't really get covered by a lot of mainstream news, obviously, or even in the counterculture news, but he did go on a whole segment about that. So what are your thoughts on that? Because I have a lot of guests that talk about these Pleiadians, these advanced beings that are trying to help us and they, they exist in, in other galaxies. What are your thoughts on that? Well, first I should say I'm not an expert on that, but I have talked to some experts. Okay. See, that's kind of my thing is find the people who are most knowledgeable about something and steal their best methods and ideas. <laughs> okay. So I've talked to some of the leaders in that field, and they seem to say that the government is actually aware of some of these alien beings, that they're slowly feeding us this information so we don't freak out, and that uh, there's good alien beings and there's bad alien beings, and they have uh, limited power, but some power to affect humanity, and that in the coming years and decades, we'll become more knowledgeable about them. I found it fascinating that basically the U.S. government and New York Times put on the front page of the New York Times, yes, there are ships from not from this planet, evidently, doing all kinds of stuff, and we don't really know what they are. And everybody in the culture went, oh, yeah, okay. And, you know. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, they were prepared for it by media, you know, by movies since people say since the Roswell crash, you notice the uptick in science fiction addressing these points. And, you know, we had that conditioning. But, yeah, I thought that was mind blowing as well. They talked about even Barack Obama talked about that uh, on a on a talk show where. These crafts are being made off world. They're not ours. They release these, this footage that's available to everyone online through mainstream sources. And it kind of barely made a blip. It was kind of like there for a minute. And it's like, ah, okay, back to the daily grind. Well, part of the problem is we're, we're <laughs> so distracted nowadays. We're, we're distracted by what I call WMDs, which are widgets of mass distraction. You know, and and everybody has so much going on that it becomes more important than ever that we actually get centered in ourselves so we can handle all the stuff of the world nowadays. And so I, I think it's more important that people find peace within than that we try to find out what's going on with the aliens. Um, but, you know, hopefully the aliens, if they're here, which I think they are, hopefully they'll help us. I think they are. I think, like you said, there's high frequency beings and there's low frequency beings. And there's probably some in the middle even that are just kind of like watching like a, like a reality show. They're like, Oh wow, this is mind blowing. Because if you really just look up, all you have to really do is look up at night and you can see like the infiniteness of life. And if you think about the amount of life that is on this planet, you know, the microcosm, the, you know, the soil microbes and the, and the various uh, ocean life and, and plant life. And then you scale that up in the macrocosmic sense. That just means there's that much life out there. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, it doesn't seem like it, but we're right now on a spinning top going 70,000 miles an hour through our infinite space you know, with a with a big ball of fire 93 million miles away and the universe seems to go on forever. We're like a, a dust particle in, in a big galaxy. 
you know, things are not as they seem to our rational, everyday uh, cultural hypnosis. But it's so beautiful and interesting, right? Even like all the things you just described, as strange and as powerful it is, it's so interesting and it's so amazing to be here on this planet and, and experience it with some level of conscious awareness. Well, it's amazing if your consciousness is is open to it and peaceful. It's uh, it's depressing if your consciousness <laughs> is focused on depressing. It's it's uh, horrible if your focus if your consciousness is focused on ho- horror. It's all out there. It's a it's a it's God's buffet in front of us, and and our mission, should we decide to accept it, is to taste of some of the finer foods. And what do you think humanity's destiny is, is personally? We talked about this new earth concept that so many people talk about, but in your opinion, what do you think humanity's destiny is? Where are we going? Well, technology is increasing so fast now that I think in a hundred years, humanity will either be extinct because we will have merged with the technology and we will be more cyborgs or, uh, humanity will be immortal, meaning we'll have conquered death. So we're in this very last stage of humanity. One way or another, what we think of as humans will be different 100 years from now. And um, artificial intelligence is becoming smarter and smarter. So I think even in 25, 30 years, humanity will not be in charge of the world. I think an artificial intelligence will be in charge of the world. Wow. And what happens then, nobody really knows. So that's that's your perspective. You think that this AI awareness will kind of not necessarily dominate, but kind of shift the God consciousness and will be kind of managing. It'll be like the manager of Earth. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you if you look at the exponential growth of artificial intelligence in just the last two years, People said, oh, they won't be able to have conversations that uh, pass what's called the Turing test for 40 years. Well, it happened last week. Yes. So you know, <laughs> things happen very quickly in technology. In the next 20 years, we won't experience 20 years of advancement. We'll experience changes like in the last 20,000 years. So it's hard to grasp that, but hopefully... Um, technology will also help us to reach higher states of consciousness more quickly. And do you feel it's our destiny as humans to be these ambassadors of love and light out in the universe? Once we've kind of hit that spiritual development and we've made it, hopefully, like you said, we don't become AI cyborgs of Satan or God only knows in some uh, dystopian future, but we go the other direction and we're out there. Can we be ambassadors of love and light in service to the divine as humans? Well, as there is today, some people are ambassadors of love and light and some people are thinking how they can shoot a bunch of people. So, you know, I think you're going to have the entire spectrum. Um, but hey, for me, it's more fun to be an ambassador of love and light and and help people than it is to uh, uh, focus on the dark side. And, you know, we all have that in us, the dark side. And you know, our job is to to reach for the higher, higher hopes rather than, you know, hurt people and destroy ourselves, which could happen. I mean, we have a lot of nuclear weapons. Uh, there's no guarantee. 
<laughs> You're absolutely right. Though, again, we I'll just filter it back to Neem Caroli, who constantly says everything is perfect. Wherever he's at right now, it's absolutely perfect. Yeah, yeah. But Jonathan, we've had an incredible interview. It just went outside of time. We were in the flow, like you talk about in your book. It feels so good to talk to you. You're such an incredible person. I, I, I feel like what you must have felt like interviewing the Dalai Lama and these incredible people. And I just feel like we did such a great job. So I do want to tell people where to find you. Uh, if you want to learn about enlightenment in this book, The Enlightenment Project, you can go to the website, theenlightenmentproject.net. He also has websites, findinghappiness.com and the podcast Awareness Explorers, which you can find at awarenessexplorers.com. And of course, the book we're talking about, again, is called The Enlightenment Project, and you can find that anywhere that you can purchase books. It's available everywhere. And he has several other books, including Communication Miracles for Couples, More Love, Less Conflict, The Technology of Joy, Life's Big Questions, and and many others. He, and he's going to continue to write, I imagine. God willing, yeah. <laughs> you know, one thing you might want to tell your listeners is that um, the enlightenmentproject.net, if they put in their email address, they'll get uh, an ebook on the five quickest ways to awaken to peace uh, for free. And they'll get an audio meditation on that for free. And they'll get the first chapter to the book for free. Oh, that's all. I think you just told them. Incredible. <laughs> um, but before we go, Jonathan, I just want to ask you one more thing. Is there some advice you can give to today's world, our listeners in 2022? I know you're saying look within, develop yourself, but is there anything else you'd like to leave our audience with? Yeah, I'll, I'll leave um, actually with a story. Um, one of the teachers that I saw was uh, in India, um, and I went to his ashram. And when I went there, he immediately pointed to me and told me to sit in front of him. And I was real nervous. I didn't know what the protocol was. And he looks at me really closely and he says, so who are you? And because uh, I didn't know what the protocol was. I said, I'm Jonathan Robinson from the United States. And he and all the people in the ashram watching just laughed hysterically. They thought that was hysterically funny. And, and I thought, well, that was the wrong answer. So uh, he said, no, who are you really? And I said, well, I'm a spiritual seeker. And he shook his head no. And I said, well, I'm an author. He shook his head no. I said, well, I'm a, a man. He shook his head no. And I did this for about two minutes until I ran out of every role I've ever played. And then I just stared in his eyes, and there were like beams of light coming out of his eyes. And as I looked in his eyes, something really strange happened. I felt like I was hit by a tsunami of love that was so powerful that I immediately started crying. And I felt all this love and peace. And as I'm like in his lap crying, he taps me on the head and he says, this love and peace you feel now, that's who you are. And your job in life is to get back to that place. Wow. What an incredible story. Holy cow. So, you know, we all have our jobs and the roles we play. But in the end, our job is to find that peace and love, try different things to see what works for you. 
uh, hang around people who inspire you, get books that inspire you, whatever, and find your way back to more peace, more love. I think when you do that, you're not only serving you and the people around you, but you're serving the whole planet. <laughs> well, thank you for that, Jonathan. What an incredible ending. I really appreciate you being here and telling these stories. And again, people check out his books, his websites, his podcast, everything that he's about, because you're going to learn so much. I learned an incredible amount from the Enlightenment Project. It's incredible. So Jonathan, thank you for being here. Please hold through the outro music. And everyone, we will see you next week. Midnight on Earth.